He always seems to get involved, doesn't he? I'm telling you, too many coconuts have hit him right on top of the skull. Well, I think uh, Anthony will be a great acquisition. He can do it all. Avery, whose show is this? And we're live. Welcome, everybody, here to the Lakers Lounge. I'm Anthony Irwin, joined on this fine Friday afternoon for an actually happy hour. We are actually, like, getting together. We're happy about the basketball that we that we just watched last night. Uh, I am joined by Jason Timp. He is of the volume. He is of hoops tonight. And he is one of my favorite people to talk hoop with. Um, he is celebrating, fresh off celebrating an anniversary with the volume. Congratulations on all of that growth, man, and all of that success. Really cool stuff what you guys are doing over there. Um, and I'm really, I've been really rooting for your guys' success because it means that I might be able to, to, to parlay some of this into some success on my end as well. Um, Jason, thank you very much for hopping on, man. How are you holding up? I'm doing good, man. Uh, this roller coaster, it's funny. I said on my show in early January, I was like, I expect the Lakers to be terrible and awesome at least a few more times before the <laughs> deadline. And it's been like five different swings. It's like, it's like after that yeah. Hawks game, you would have been as gloom and doom as you could possibly be. And now it's like, man, if they beat the Knicks tomorrow, <laughs> like it's like, yeah, all right. of a sudden it looks pretty good. <laughs> I was literally dressed up in Joker attire. After the Houston game, like had the makeup on and everything. And and no, here we are uh, only like within a week of that. And I'm like, yeah, you know, look at that. You know, <laughs> it's just it's a weird team that w- that we're going to be talking about here. And actually, I think that's a perfect launching point. Um, it's slightly different from the from the show plan or whatever. But you mentioned these wild swings. Right. And after last night's game, I had it texted to me. I mentioned him on last night's show. But Mark Stein texted me. He was like, hey. Because I've been on the, I've been beating the drum of I think Darvin needs to go, and um, uh, the the reason for it is I think he's he's lost the locker room, and Mark fairly made the point that uh, if a coach had lost the locker room, that you wouldn't get that kind of effort that you got Thursday night when the Lakers beat the Celtics. Perfectly fair thing to point out, but I kind of felt like while I was watching it, it felt like an fu game, right? It felt like they were making their shots and then immediately staring at Darwin, right? And then after the game, you had the Angelo Russell kind of subtweet the, the the coaching staff a little bit, saying that Christian Wood played the way he did and Jackson Hayes played the way he did because they knew that they weren't going to get pulled every single time they missed a shot. And um, I don't know. The way the where I wanted to start with you is I know that you played basketball at one of the higher levels of, of anybody who, you know, does this typically. And um, – I'm sure you've been in locker rooms where there wasn't as much faith in a, in a head coach or if the coach had lost the locker room altogether. And I feel like that's where you would kind of see it show up is those violent swings from incredible basketball like we saw Thursday night and just not caring at all like we saw in the two games prior. Um, am I making that assessment fairly? Is that kind of where that would show up or do you think it's you know there's no real correlation there? So for starters, I, I I I disagree with Mark Stein's assertion there. Just from the standpoint of like, I think basketball players are are competitive and they love to play basketball for the most part. Most basketball yeah. players are like that. Um, I think that even in the environment where you're frustrated with the coaching staff, where you're frustrated with the schematic approach, where you're frustrated with rotations or whatever it is, I think you can also still love basketball and love to compete in spite of that. And 
Um, I actually was the worst team I was ever on was my first year playing. It was a community college here in Tucson. And it was just an absolute disaster from from start to finish in the season. I think we went four and twenty five. But I'll I'll uh, there was a specific game. The best team in our conference was a school from Phoenix called South Mountain, and they actually came down, and they were you know consistently you know twenty twenty five wins every single year, and we were terrible, riding like a seven game winning streak. But we ended up battling them in this crazy game where we nearly beat them. We ended up barely losing just at the end, and it's like because. We had some good players on our team. We have pride. We love playing basketball. And what we yeah. did when we saw South Mountain come into the gym is we saw an opportunity. We saw a challenge. And we wanted mm -hmm. to kind of test ourselves. And, and that's what I think this is. In a lot of ways, like the, uh, the, the Lakers are not a team that has a talent issue, in my opinion. They have a roster balance issue. And then they have a coaching issue, which we're going to get into. But like these are these are good basketball players that have a lot of pride. And I think they walked in there and like, of course, everyone's saying this game's over. Boston's going to run them over. Of course, everyone's saying without LeBron and AD, they have no chance. But it's like, no, Austin Reeves is good. D'Angelo Russell is good. Jared Vanderbilt's good. Rui Hachimura is good. Jackson Hayes is These guys are good. They're good mm -hmm. basketball players. And they want to go yeah. out there and they want to show what they can do. And, and honestly, like, one of the big reasons why I was encouraged about the Lakers as a regular season team was the simple fact that they have a good amount of player archetypes without LeBron James and Anthony Davis. They've got some big athletes without LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Now, that was not the case in years past. Yeah. They have well, yeah. legitimate shot creation yeah. beyond LeBron James and Anthony Davis. That was not the case in years past. So they actually can put out a reasonable basketball product. I think, I think actually it was more of an indictment of the effort and energy and focus consistency throughout the season that they went out and beat Boston last night. Like Torian Prince, for instance, I'll give you Absolutely. Torian as an example. Uh, Torian, ironically, was the one player without a positive plus minus last night, which is like objectively <laughs> funny uh, given the narrative. But I actually thought Torian played a freaking amazing basketball game last night by his standards, especially in the second half. I thought he was super active on the glass. He got a bunch of like kind of 50-50 balls where I was like... Late. That that forced Drew to kind of step out of bounds on the sideline there. That yeah. closeout I thought was like a game saving type play. He he was great. He had some good dribble penetration. He had a couple of bit like he he was. I thought Torian played really well. And like and and honestly, like the 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 issue is, in my opinion, is like some of this is on the players. I want to be clear. Like when we discuss Darwin, I think it's important to acknowledge, like especially after the in season tournament, that was a group that had a sense of accomplishment. And mm -hmm. they already had effort issues before then, as we know, even a lot of their wins yeah. were like games where they looked like shit for three quarters and then they came back and won in the fourth, you know, and it's yeah. like they then they had like an opportunity to exhale after the in-season tournament. And then it's like they immediately lose a Dallas game. They shouldn't have lost. They immediately lose to the Spurs with like who hadn't lost a game or hadn't won a game in, in a month or whatever. So a lot of it is like I think that actually shines a brighter light on on that specific flaw. Now, as far as the losing the locker room idea, I think it's I think it's different than a lot of other situations you'll see because the Lakers have so much talent. And I think part of the issue is is like I think I I don't have any sourcing on this, and and maybe you can kind of clarify. But I'm of the opinion that those guys wanted Darvin to get fired, and a lot mm -hmm. of it was pouty, passive aggressive play kind of geared towards that front um and, and like we can get into more of the, the the x's and o's stuff in a minute but like i think that was the gist of it i think they i think the lakers were passive aggressively trying to send a message in a lot of ways yeah i think there was some of that i just think generally those six guys 
you know, not counting Max, right? He would make seven. But those six guys who went on that run to the Western Conference Finals, like when you go on a long playoff run like that, there's a like brotherhood that gets formed, right? You look at those human beings differently than you did before that run. And I think a lot of those guys or all those guys came into the season thinking like, all right, we saw what we could do last year with basically no margin for error. Now let's see how we could build on it. And then to have the head coach like, you know, kind of almost immediately quit on the Austin and D'Angelo Russell pairing. And then it took forever for him to start to, to believe in Jared Vanderbilt. Unfortunately, he got hurt last night and we'll see how long that that holds him out again as well. Rui's role has been all over the map this year. And and I, I really think that, yeah, to your point about like they wanted him gone. I, I think now last night. I think everybody's kind of coming to the realization he isn't right. Rob and Jeannie really believe in Darwin. I think they have some, there some of their own reasons for that belief as well that extend beyond basketball. And I do kind of think that like last night I reported going into the game that they were getting ready to start last year's starters, right? They were like, had LeBron and AD not play or had they played, had they been available, you would have gotten the D'Lo Austin Vando LeBron AD lineup. And I was told um, by some of the people closer to the situation that there was like a legitimate like, ooh, you know, like like go. some a, a real vibe, you know, in, in, in a locker room of like, all right, hell yeah, let's go. And I think we saw that, by the way, in the Golden State game where that was the group that played all through that overtime. And I think that's why we got the immediate downturn when they went right back to the starters with Torian in there, right? Um, in, in the very next couple games is like those guys, they're half, they're more than half of your rotation. They're a big old chunk of your, of your, of your locker room and an even bigger part of your culture, I think in that locker room. And, and I think those kind of those waves that you ride positive or negative have a lot to do with the opportunity that those guys are getting. And I thought last night when those guys had that opportunity and coming out and in that golden state game, like the best that the Lakers have looked is when more of those guys feel like they get to tangibly affect the game. And, you know, that kind of brings us to Darwin. That's driven me insane. Is that like, it's, it's staring at me right there in terms of like, I think it makes the most basketball sense. I make it, I think it makes the most human being sense to go with those six guys. Um, how have you been watching the season? Has you, have you been driven as insane as I have? watching those guys i think they've played 30 minutes or so together so far this year that that starting group from from last year's playoff run and 19 of those minutes came in that golden state game i've been driven insane by it. how have how have you taken all this in you know it's funny because like I, I really do try to see the reasoning behind like yeah. what a coach's thought process is and honestly what i really think it comes down to is darvin ham galaxy brain to this whole thing like I think he overthought yeah, it, and so so, so let, let let's kind of like set the stage by acknowledging the reality that at the beginning of the season Vando was hurt. So yeah, and you, you look at tired. it, and and Austin was tired. So you look at it and you go, okay, uh, I can't really put Rui at the three because then I don't have a a point of attack defender on the floor. And I think Darvin, I even though Torian to me is like an extremely mediocre perimeter defender. Darvin, I think, views him as like a legitimate top, like like a number one head of the snake type of defensive option. So yep. I think Darvin looked at it as like, okay, am I going to go with Rui or would I rather have him kind of come in for LeBron as that four and, and I'll put Torian Prince in there? That I think made sense at the time. 
at the start at the mm-hmm. start of the year. And a lot of times too, you have to see something happen before you figure out what works and what doesn't, right? So then we find out pretty quickly at the start of the season, it's like, oh, Austin D'Lo Torian is just not athletic enough on the perimeter yeah. to have any sort of real success. And so then we go into the phase where he's messing with the skill guards, right? Now we're taking D'Angelo Russell out of the starting lineup. We're taking Austin Reeves out of the starting lineup. That to me made some sense, right? Like mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't agree with benching uh, Austin in particular first. I think a lot, I think a lot of the, the problems could have been solved by having D'Lo kind of play that sixth man role, but with the same level of aggression that he's had as of late, because he was super passive when he was in that sixth man role when he first went there. So I, yeah. I so you bring in Cam Reddish into that two spot and it's like, it's like, okay, now we've got a better a head of the snake type of perimeter defender there that made some sense. But then the clear problem was you're leaving your best players on the bench. It's like, if you're yeah. ranking the Lakers top six players, like Jared Vanderbilt's in there, Austin Reeves is in there. Rui Hachimura is in there. And so you're keeping yep. three of your very best basketball players out of that lineup, which can, can be a problem, right? Then Darvin does like this. This is where it gets really galaxy brainy. He's like, yeah. screw it. Let's put all the athletes out there. All right? wings. <laughs> let's go. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it just, and it, and it doesn't make any sense. And then, yeah. then for him to be like, okay, now consistency is the issue. So let's go back to what we did at the start of the season, even though we have a gigantic sample size of evidence that it doesn't work. Yeah. To me, like the, the Austin Reeves, the Angela Russell, Jared Vanderbilt, uh, uh, a LeBron AD lineup has the best combination of keeping as many of your best players on the floor as possible within the context of what a working lineup uh, needs while also checking those boxes. Like you need right. to have a top tier high motor athlete in your starting lineup. If you are a serious basketball team, end of story, forget about it. Like that's, that is an absolute necessity. If you look at Denver, it's like it's KCP and Aaron Gordon, right? You look at Boston, all of them really are right. Like you, you, like you, you, you have to have that kind of athlete that is not one of your stars that can, that can just take on those dirty work responsibilities. And it's so obvious to see, it's like, Oh, when Jared's out there, he just does a lot of the more difficult stuff, which allows your other four players to lean into what they're good at. And honestly, like I, I'm encouraged to hear, cause I hadn't actually seen that report yet from you. I'm encouraged to hear that they're leaning in that direction. And I hope Jared Vanderbilt's injury doesn't limit his ability yeah. to, to make that a reality. But like, I think, I think at the end of the day, that actually kind of paints their strategy kind of heading into the deadline too. Yeah. Because yeah. like I it, it, like I, I tend to think that if you if Darwin has concerns about Jared Vanderbilt, whether it's his ability to stay healthy or it's to impact the game offensively like Torian Prince can or whatever it is, then you need to provide Darwin with essentially a shoe-in option for that specific yes. role. And and that right. becomes the goal at the deadline. Yeah, I I think they could really use an upgrade at their at their shooting guard spot. And the guy that I have always really really wanted for them there is Gary Trent Jr. Like I just think he makes a whole bunch of sense on both sides of the ball. He can play with both. Like it seems like the Lakers are more interested in keeping D'Lo now than they were say at the beginning of the year. He can work with both D'Lo and Austin. Um, I think he has a cool game. Like I just think it makes a lot of sense there. We'll see what they're able to do there. I know their focus is more on Bruce Brown, but I think his price is too high. I don't think they're going to be able to make that work. Bruce Brown um, is my dream. That's the guy that I think. Like if Bruce oh, yeah. Brown, I think I think Bruce Brown makes Torian Prince a more feasible three. Even though I'd still I'd still prefer him to be in a smaller minutes role. But like Bruce Brown to me is that like two guard version of Jared Vanderbilt while also being a plus offensive player. That to me is what yeah. Bruce Brown is. Well, that's why the Lakers really really wanted him 
in the summer, right? Mm-hmm. And thought that they were going to get him before Indiana made that balloon uh, contract with him and, and you know, wound up losing out on him um, and, and you know, had to rebound and, and all of that stuff the way that they did. But but yeah, I, I I do really agree, and actually that's a that's a perfect segue to what we think the Lakers should maybe keep their eye on here heading into the deadline. I just wrote for Substack about the deadline in general and how it's uh, de- developing a lot more slowly than a lot of the buyers would have liked. Right, you had that flurry of activity with Toronto moving Pascal Siakam and OG Ananobi, um, and I guess now you've had the Stephen Adams move, but that doesn't really affect either team's basketball interest for this year um and and i think the lakers along with other buyers at the deadline here are uh you know kind of frustrated with the asking prices from a lot of these teams right dorian finney smith apparently got uh you know the the nets turned down a trade offer for two first round picks for dorian finney smith and tyus jones was expected to fetch a first rounder even though he's a restrictor and unrestricted free agent at the end of the season and is like overqualified to be a backup point guard, but probably underqualified to be a starting point guard. Uh, Boyan Bogdanovich, the Detroit Pistons are asking for Austin Reeves for him. It's like, nope, not not doing that. So the Lakers are kind of frustrated with the asking prices right now, and I think they're kind of preparing for a somewhat quiet deadline. But aside from what you just talked about, is there anything in particular that you would like to see the Lakers upgrade in the next week or so? So I, I as I've kind of looked around um... – DeJounte Murray's not my favorite option, but I do the, I do like the prospect of having a guy on the team that can actually beat people off the dribble. That, to me, is something that I find interesting. I also think that there is a possibility that he could come in and be an impact defensive player. I think there's some risk there. I think there's some risk that he comes in and is underwhelming on that end of the floor, but I think there's some possibility there. Uh, I, Bruce Brown, as I mentioned, is my favorite option because I just think he, he gives you your, uh, your, basically your two way version of Vando at the two and gives you yeah. some flexibility. Like, I think if you had Bruce Brown on the team, you could even get away with Rui at the three, if, if you yeah. needed to do that because of the fact that he would just have an easier perimeter assignment. I think Austin Reeves has shown that when you give him the second best perimeter defender that to guard, that he can at least do a like a like an okay job on him and yeah. like an, a job that's not going to actively hurt your team you know what i mean but at the end of the day i think the number one strategy has to be you have to come up with a clear five i think when you look around yeah. the league it's it's very clear who everyone's at the top of the league who their core five is like denver's going down with jamal murray contavious Caldwell pope michael porter jr aaron gordon and nicole Jokic. the celtics are going down with drew holiday Derek white jason tatum Jalen Brown and Kristaps Porzingis. The Milwaukee Bucks are going to go down. I, I don't think they can, with how well Malik Beasley's shooting the ball, and he honestly has been defending a little bit better as of late. Like I think they're going to go down with Dame and Beasley and Chris Middleton and, and Giannis and Brooke Lopez, right? Like if you go down the league, everyone kind of knows who their five is. And for the Lakers, there's just some question marks there. And as much as like as much as we've been begging for the Jared Vanderbilt starting lineup adjustment, that is not because it's the end all be all for their playoff capability. That is. 1000% just your best chance to win regular season games which yeah. at this point is like of paramount you really need to do it <laughs> yeah you really need to do it like yeah. you, you can't just keep hemorrhaging points at the beginning of games and halves right so like like yeah, to did me did you see did you see the quote from Darwin the other day it was like you know for some reason the first and third quarters we just really have a hard time <laughs> Darwin <laughs> I actually just 
I didn't see that quote right after the game, but I just saw it for the first time yesterday. And I was like, hold on. That sounds like a bit. Is he doing a bit? Like, what's, yeah, what's, what's going on? I mean, you know, you – anyway. All right. Go ahead. Darwin. But, yeah, so I, think, I, I, do think, I do think you've got to find a way to kind of consolidate that. Here's the thing. I, I, I have – I already liked D'Angelo Russell from last year. I, I just looked at it as some of the realities of his playoff limitations – but like I've gained a mountain of respect for him this year on so many different levels. Last Just, night, especially. Oh, oh my god! Like the but, ability to impact the game positively when you aren't shooting the ball. Like that's the thing. That's the question I have about him. And by the way, like you know, I wrote about this for Substack today too. The Lakers were impressed by that. Like as much as everybody went nuts about the scoring that he did the prior two weeks what I've been told actually is that last night was actually the game that a lot of people in the Lakers organization were like, Oh, that's new. You know, the rebounding, the passing, the, the maintained confidence, the vibe increase, even when, you know, Boston would go on a run, he was there to pick things up a little bit. That's new, man. Like in a big game like that, that's really new for him, but sorry, go ahead. No, you're fine. It, to, to your point, it's such a huge credit to D'Angelo Russell. And like, even beyond the play, which, by the way, he's just playing the best basketball of his career right now. Just to, to yeah. put it simply, that's what he's doing. Absolutely. Um, his professionalism all season, even though, like I, I said before the season that I thought D'Angelo Russell getting traded was one of the safest bets in the NBA. And obviously yeah. that was before he played the best stretch of basketball of his career here in the last, uh, last couple of weeks. But I think I, I wasn't alone in thinking that. I think a lot of yeah. people kind of saw Lakers thought that. Yeah, they structured his contract that way. So, like, yeah. so for him to basically come into this essentially being a temporary mercenary and for him to handle it the way he has, it just it being a leader to the young guys, like pumping them up and making them feel good about themselves, embracing whatever role the team asks him to embrace. Like, he even, even on the heels of this, or right on the, the doorstep, I should say, of this trade deadline with how well he's been playing, I've been so unbelievably impressed. That said, I do think it would be a mistake if the Lakers held on to him if it got them a good player. Meaning, like, if yeah. they pulled out of a negotiation when a deal was on the table because they wanted to keep D'Angelo Russell, I believe that would be a mistake. And the answer is just really simple. It's resource management. Like, yep. uh, as much as I think D'Angelo Russell's been playing his ass off, do I think the Lakers can win a championship with Austin Reeves and D'Angelo Russell starting and closing games at the 1-2? and two? No, I do not. So... Yeah. That, that to me is is the beginning and the end of the discussion. And so from there, if you have the ability to use his salary to bring back a player that can fit into that five, I think you have to do so. Because then what you're doing is you're bringing everything closer to a five that makes some sense. And I think honestly, like I... Uh, have you heard anything about Gabe Vincent? Is he, he going to most likely be able to come back before the end of the season? They are really skeptical that he's going to be able to. At it's all. a really tricky injury that he's dealing with here. It's kind of like, you remember, remember with Kendrick Nunn, right? He dealt with the knee contusion, right? And and so essentially with Gabe, he's dealing with swelling that then becomes a contusion. And then, and then you have to recover from both, right? And he had the surgery on it that Nunn didn't get. Um and and that kind of improves the likelihood that he had that he might be able to come back this year. But then you're hoping that a guy coming off of knee surgery helps you in the season that he got knee surgery. So I'm told the Lakers are being pretty active in trying to get his name out there in trade talks. That makes sense. I, I was, the, I was, I'm not looking at him as like a guy who could fit into that five, but like, man, if he could somehow come back in March and just basically be a bench guard, 
that yeah. would certainly that would certainly yeah. be useful. But yeah, like when I look at like a an ancillary move for a Dorian Finney-Smith, if that was possible, if I looked at a a, a Dejounte Murray move, a, a a Bruce Brown move, like a, even, Gary Trent Jr. is actually a, a good option as well. But like if you can find some way to bring in a real two-way athlete that is just clearly yes. one of your five best players that can start at the two or the three. I just think that monumentally improves your chances. I just think it does. And I, I think if you're, if you were going to play D'Angelo Russell and Austin Reeves at the one, at the one and the two and close games with them, you would need a transcendently great three. You would need yeah. Jaden McDaniels as your three, mm-hmm. a guy that is just like one of the very best two way wings in the league. And they just don't have that option. And so to me, like I, I, I hope the Lakers don't fall for this. Not, and I shouldn't say fall for it. I believe it. I think D'Angelo Russell got humiliated by Bruce Brown, went into the yeah. summer, worked his ass off and got way better at basketball round of yeah. applause to D'Angelo Russell. Like we've talked about gained so much respect for him, but this is, this is a poor team construct. If your intention is to win the NBA championship and they've got to find a way to address that. Yeah, the concern that I have is essentially like I think you can get away with having one guard who gets targeted, right? Steph, Dame, etc. The problem like with those Portland teams is that they also had CJ McCollum and then they also had Anthony Simons, right? And and like when you have two guards who on any given possession can be targeted, that's where you really run into some postseason problems. And that's the case here with D'Lo and Austin is that on any given possession, a team can look on one side of the court or the other and okay, there's food over there. Oh, look, shoot, there's food <laughs> over there, you know? And 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 I think the the Lakers um need to address that in one way or the other, even though like I I do kind of think that Austin's defensive woes are pretty circumstantial. Like I I I really liked the way that there was a lot more pre-rotation done in that, like even as recently as the in-season tournament. I thought that a lot of the d- defensive concepts when he was out there made a lot more sense. And for some reason they've gone away from it, but you know, that kind of brings us back to the, the center issue being Darwin this season. Um, I want to uh, discuss also the notion of like, we've talked about the stuff that they need to do on the perimeter. How much do you buy into bringing somebody to help with a specific matchup? Because I think no matter what, your path to the finals is going to go through Denver. Like, I think they're clearly the best team in the conference and the Lakers don't have a single person on this team right now who I feel at all comfortable throwing on Jokic. And uh, physically, no matter what it might be, right? Even if it's just like, hey, beat the crap out of them for six fouls. I don't think they have anybody who can even do that. Um, What do you think about upgrading on the front court to specifically address stuff that you're going to see in the postseason eventually? So it's more just one of those things where of all of the the list of issues that the Lakers have I I uh, let's just let's just use this as an example. Mm-hmm. If the Lakers could stand pat everywhere else but go get Andre Drummond, do I think that gives them a better chance at beating Denver than if they were to not get a backup center but they got Bruce Brown or an Alex Caruso? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I would rather have Bruce Brown or Alex Caruso. So it's more just a, a once again, coming down to like kind of resource Asset, management. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Like if you could do a real easy kind of contract flip type of deal where you get a, where you get a guy back, then sure. Um, but, but to put it simply, like 
I almost would look almost just purely on the margins there. Like, okay, here's a, a second round pick and a, and a, and a, and a guy that's outside of your rotation or, or let's get a guy in the buyout market before I would consider moving any sort of asset for something like that. I feel this way about most teams, by the way, like every team, it's like, I've seen Denver fans talk about how they need a bench player. I've seen Celtics fans talk about how they want a bench wing. And it's like, yeah, ideally, you could yeah. fill every hole on your roster and that'd be great. Yeah. But like, but at the end of the day, like if you got to, to me, it's like step one is who's your five. <laughs> like step one, that's step one. Step one is who's yeah. your five. And, and if, and if you don't know who your five is addressing problems on the back end while leaving those unaddressed, I think is a huge mistake. And and so I, I, I agree with you. Like, do I think Jackson Hayes is going to be able to play backup center in the conference finals against the, or conference semis against the nuggets? No, I don't. Yeah. Uh, yeah, do I think Christian Wood can? Probably not. But like, but I, I think like the Nuggets had literally one of the worst benches in the league last year and won the title because their best five guys was just way better than everybody. And it, and yeah. when you scale minutes up and you can find like you can you can find a way to like. Do you remember in the the, the Grizzlies series, which was like they they got blitzed in all the LeBron minutes, uh, the LeBron at center minutes, but like. They also like wouldn't match AD's minutes with Jaron Jackson for whatever reason. So like Jaron Jackson would be out there without uh, without the Lakers having a big on the floor. It's like you can do things like just match AD's minutes to Nikola Jokic. And you know what? Yeah. I do think a LeBron, Rui, Vando front line could win minutes against DeAndre Jordan. I just do. So like it's yeah. more it's more about like get your five, get your five. If you don't know who your five is, then everything you need to do has to be geared towards getting who your five is. That's what's been so frustrating from this season is that like, how do you not have any idea on that before you go into these negotiations? Right? Like yeah. that's just, it's malpractice. Like to not have any understanding on that front going into the most important week of the season from a personnel standpoint is just crazy to me. And, and yeah, some of it's circumstantial, like you, like, like we talked about at the top, but um, at the end of the day, those, those five guys only getting that much time together and not having any, any idea if they have in fact improved collectively before you go into this week is, is just insane. Um, all right. Like last 10 minutes here before we, before we have to let you go, you have been on something recently that um, I could not possibly agree with more. And that's your takes on refereeing in the NBA and rewarding the foul beating and rewarding um, some of these moves that, you know, you have an offensive player who like dribbles into a defensive player flails madly and hopes to get a couple free throws out of it and how in the regular season that gets rewarded. And I think, um, it goes away in the postseason. That's why a lot of those players and teams really tend to struggle when those calls go away. Um, have, as you have been talking, uh, talking about this as much as you have, have you gotten any like feedback on why those rules exist the way that they do other than the league is hoping that those inflated stats get more fans to the screen? I don't think it's that necessarily because I actually do think the league, I mean, we've seen it in some of the adjustments they've made in terms of like trying to take out non-basketball plays, although they've done a terrible job of it. At least it's their intention. I've talked to uh, some people that have, that have, like done a lot of research on this specifically and kind of picked their brains about it. And from what I understand to me, it's a fundamental difference between like the letter of the law versus discretion. 
And, mm-hmm. and, and that's the thing, like if you, if you really get down to what grifting is, so for instance, it's uh let's, let's talk about Jason Tatum's little stupid drop step move that he used at the end of the game last night where he didn't get the call, where he kind of stuck his arms out, just like went up like this and didn't get the call. Yep. So like on that play, what he, what he, what he's hoping for is like, he's technically in a shooting motion, right? Like he's technically gathering yeah. up into a shooting pocket, but he's hoping that he can catch an arm on his arms. Now by the book, that is a foul. And that is why that gets called so much. I mean, we even saw last night, there was a, a low gather that Jalen Brunson used on kind of like a step through move as he was driving to the basket for what yeah, basically ended up being the dagger against the Pacers. Right. And it, it, what, what it is, is he's, he's doing a unnatural gather down low on purpose in intending to draw contact across his arms. And so like, that is a letter of the law approach. And like, it's really simple. Like you can break it down to somebody, you can even tweet that out and be like, this calls BS. I don't like this. And you'll have dozens of people going like he hits him on the arm. It's clearly a foul. And it's like, the problem is, is we have to remember fundamentally kind of like with our jobs, like as people who cover the NBA, like at the end of the day, we're doing this to make money, right? So like we want to have, we have to, there has to be a certain decision-making process geared around like what's best for the show, right? The same thing goes for the league, right? At the end of the day, this is an entertainment product. I have dreams and hopes in my lifetime, and I'm sure you do too, that, you know, 20, 25 years from now, it's even more a global game that, that the NBA could, could have unbelievably untapped potential overseas and all these different things. Like I believe in the long-term uh, potential of the NBA, but you yep. need the television product to continue to get better and better. And so what well, the problem is, is the letter of the law is interfering with the, te- the television product and making it ugly in a lot of cases. And yeah. uh, I, the, there was, uh, was it the um, in-season tournament championship game I, where I was complaining the most, I think, where it was like a foul call every 10 seconds. That was, that was yeah. bothering me so much. I can't remember which game it was, but it was one of those. Like it can, it can legitimately ruin a, a game. It can ruin a game. And so I think it comes down to two things. One, a fundamental, a fundamental misunderstanding of what a referee's job is in the NBA, which is like your job is to make sure a smooth basketball game takes place, <laughs> not to officiate yeah. the rules. Your job is yeah. not to inflict yeah, you're the not rules a hall monitor. You're just, you're just you're, like, exactly. you're there. You're a facilitator of a basketball game. That is your yeah. job. And then problem number two, in my opinion, is there are way too many officials that don't have a basketball background. And some mm-hmm. of this is on the NBA. And I think they need to do a better job of just kind of getting out to, I don't know if there's a way to recruit and like advertise to these kinds of people, but they need to be targeting former college basketball players and former overseas pros and guys who have had a lot of hands-on experience in the game to be officials because they will have a much better time navigating the discretion of what should and should not be called in an NBA game. So if we can figure out how to get refs to understand that their ego doesn't matter, they are here to facilitate basketball games and nothing more. And then two, we figure out how to make the basketball product look more like basketball by having the discretion calls made by former basketball players. I think those two things would go a long way towards fixing the problem, but I'm not optimistic. Yeah. On that front, I I think there needs to be a general rule, like almost like a, um, a commandment that, that like, you know, you have like certain commandments that, that like override whatever the letter of the law might be. And number one to me for refereeing would be, if the thing that is being done would start a fight in a pickup game, you can't reward it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like if we, if you and I, or if I was playing pickup or whatever, and I went up and I just like, you know, went up through somebody's arms to draw contact there. 
there's no free throws in pickup. There's no point in doing that. So you, like the person that I did that to would just be like, what are you doing? Right. Same goes for like some of the, the, the charge calls that you get where somebody drives into the, into the lane, kicks it out. And then you have somebody it purposely stand in front of them and hope to get knocked over. If I did that and somebody called, you know, if I did that and I called the charge and impacted a play and pick up that way, start a fight for sure. Like that would, that would immediately launch um, a riot on that basketball court. And rightfully so I would deserve to get my ass kicked for doing that. And I think if you're a referee and you see something that would get somebody's ass kicked on a basketball court, you can't reward them for that thing. And I feel like that would solve a lot of these things. And like, I think you have to have spent some time on a basketball court to wonder, understand those things. You know, you have to have played the game to understand that like, yeah, that letter of the law is true, but like, it's not within the spirit of the game. And, and I think that spirit of the game is what you're talking about. And, you know, also, also, like this is, I think, um, kind of my fundamental issue with with the league is contact that happens away from the basket is seen so differently right now than contact that happens near the basket, and and I think that needs to be balanced out. Where you know, like these the the um, the Kawhi Leonard rule that exists because Kawhi landed on um, was it Zaz yeah Zaza's foot and is now a flagrant foul, right? Um, I understand why that exists the way that it does, but when you think about it and like jump shooters jump forward, guys who are closing out jump forward and, and like this idea that you have this like landing zone rule that all these guys take advantage of and fall over anytime anybody is within like a foot of them. And it leads to these like three point, these actually, these three free throw attempts. Um, I, I just don't think that's part of the game. That should be part of the game. And then you look at the contact that leads to three free throw attempts compared to contact that is incurred and not called on the way to a basket. I just think that needs to be leveled out. And, and I don't, how would you go about doing that? I, I don't even know how you would, how you would. And, and the problem is too, the NBA NBPA, I don't think really wants that either because so many of their guys have lived fat and gotten, you know, nice stat lines off of those trips to the free throw line. Yeah, it's complicated. The perimeter interior dynamic is interesting because I, I think it is, it, it is like a little bit tougher to parse out than, than what would meet the eye. For instance, like, like there's a lot of two way contact around the basket. So yeah. for instance, like I've never been that concerned about the way LeBron gets officiated because I want him to be able to hit you with his off arm and I want him to, yeah. be, to be able to drop his shoulder yeah. and I want him to be able to, to, to do a lot of that kind of stuff. Right. And so like, to me, it's like kind of a give and a take. And there is some reality to the fact that like, if I hit if I go to a step back jump shot and you kind of barely tap me on the forearm on my follow through, the shot's going to come two two feet short of the rim. Oh, for sure. Know? So like, yeah. there's some truth to that. To me, it just keeps coming back to the grifting versus the playing basketball thing. And this is where discretion would kind of uh, uh, take take hold is, you know, we already are getting so much stuff wrong. I'm okay with getting stuff wrong in the pursuit of improving the game. And so what I would do there is like, I'll give you an example. Let's say a guy comes over a ball screen and he gets free on the ball screen for a pull-up three and he elevates. And as he's shooting, the dude who's pursuing from behind hits him on top of the head and it like, and, and causes a, a, an issue with the shot. That to me is a foul because the guard is playing basketball and he makes a basketball move to get to a basketball shot and yeah. he gets fouled. 
when the dude who's defending the on-ball player is trying to sidle up over the top of the screen and he's kind of sort of attached and the ball handler will just shoot right behind the screen and just throw some BS up at the basket, even though it's not a real basketball shot. To me, that's an example of a grift. You're not trying to make a basketball play right now. They've actually already tried to legislate that specific shot out of it. Right. But like I would extend that to everything on the perimeter. So for instance, like when you see a guy uh, around the basket, drop his arms in a low gather to try to get through contact to go to the basket. I'd be like, I don't care if he rakes you across the arm and scratches you in the process. Not a foul because yeah, you're not does, playing basketball. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because like because he's not playing basketball. And like, yeah. And to, and to me, that is that what, far out from your body. You deserve to get your arms like hammered to hell. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll give you. I'll, I'll give you one last example: the Embiid face-up stuff. Oh, so, wow. it, like, like forever. The face-up jump shot has been a big part of, like, it's been a big part of, like, isolation post-up basketball. Uh, specifically, like, clearing space, jab step, rise up and fire, right? Uh, like, like, Carmelo Anthony basically made his career out of that, right? You make the jab step to get separation, and right. you're trying to elevate outside of the defender's reach so that you can get a good, clean look, right? Yep. Joel Embiid is actually probing with his jab step yeah. to try to get you to hit him in the arms. It's the craziest thing. And like, and it works. And so what's kind of funny is like one of the big parts of Joel Embiid's success as a mid-range shooter is nobody guards him there because it's yeah. like, if you do, you have just as much of a chance of getting a foul as you do a- a- of him actually missing the shot. And so it- it's one of those things where I would just allow discretion to win the day. I would go to the officials and I'd be like, look, we want basketball games to look more like basketball games. Let's in the event that you see a player make a move with the soul that you said, you pointed out perfectly in a pickup game would start a fight. Example is like the D'Angelo Russell shot last night where he drew two free throws in the late fourth quarter. Yeah. Drives to his left, holds his arm out with his right arm and kind of elevates up into the shot. That is a move that has no D'Angelo Russell was not trying to make a pull-up jump shot there. He was trying to get to the foul line. Yeah. Did you see where the ball ended up? It almost went over the backboard. Yeah, he just threw it up at the rim. So, like, to me, that's where I would give the refs the discretion to be like, hey, yeah, you got fouled, but that's not basketball. Let's play on. Yep, I agree completely. Um, All right, I think that is all the the time that we have for you. Uh, Again, congratulations on all of the success that you have had with the volume and on Hoops tonight. Find that that channel, subscribe to it, and and I promise you will uh, you will thank me for helping you find it. I do got to say, you and I are both Star Wars fans here, and we got this news at the top of the show. And I do want to send us out with it. Apparently, Carl Weathers um, of the Mandalorian, obviously, of uh, he played Apollo Creed um, in Rocky. He passed away on Tuesday, and I do oh, want to no. say, yeah, rest in peace to Carl Weathers. I loved his Mandalorian character, man. I He's like, so I just. He he looked like he was having so much fun acting in those shows. And just you could see him like absolutely chewing up every single one of his lines and loving every inch of the of the space he was given on that show. One of my all-time favorite um actors and one of my all-time favorite characters. Uh rest in peace to Carl Weathers. But but Jason, thank you very much for hopping on, man. I look forward to uh, hopefully talking to you again here soon. And uh and best of luck here for the rest of the season. Thanks, man. I appreciate it, Anthony. It was always fun uh, to chat, and I'm looking forward to doing it again soon, man. All right. Uh, That'll do it for this week's content here in the Lakers Lounge. Make sure you guys hit that subscribe button, like all that good stuff, and we'll be back with you guys on 
Sunday. Until then, I'm Anthony Irwin. That was Jason Timpf, and this has been the Lakers Night.